0: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. So it's already February. What are you waiting for? Invest in yourself this year and start learning something new at lynda.com with a free 10-day trial. Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find that work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise or find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills, in 2015, lynda.com has something for everyone. So sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com forward slash WWII, and you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, access to view tutorials on tablets and iPhone and Android mobile devices, access to new courses added every week, Some of the courses and videos you might like are ones like Getting Things Done by David Allen, the best-selling author, shares his tips for being more productive, Small Business Secrets, Gamification of Learning, or Business Writing Fundamentals. As for some of the courses I've tried and loved, um, I've been using the Photoshop to make even more designs for my coffee mugs, so expect to see an explosion of those on the website. And there's always WordPress for those of you who are just dying to start your own podcast. And I know you are. You've written to me. So, after you listen to this episode and learn how the Germans almost lost Crete, invest in yourself and sign up in a free 10-day trial to linda.com by visiting, this is important, lynda.com forward slash WWII. Go ahead. I challenge you to learn something new in 2015. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 121, Crete, Part 2. Last time, the Germans had finally come to claim the island off of the Greek mainland. With it in their possession, the Axis could keep the oil fields at Ploesti that much safer, as well as project power into the eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East, as well as threaten Alexandria. And if Rommel could keep pushing, however haltingly, eastward, the Allies could be looking at the end of their dominion of the entire area. In May of 1941, this was perceived as a very real possibility. Yet the Germans had mainly started off their airborne invasion of Crete with mistakes that were suicidal in the extreme. Most of this can be accounted for with faulty reconnaissance. A mistake that has happened thousands of times in history, but with the pace of mechanized battle of the day. In just hours, the Germans had lost almost 2,000 men, who never had a chance to give battle, mostly dying before returning to the earth. By sunset of May 20th, the situation was thus. To the west, at Melamey Airfield, the Germans of Group West, under General Mendel, had a large group of men around 1,000, to the west or left of the airstrip, on the other side of the Tavronitis Riverbed. They also held a bridge that connected the open field with the area just to the southwest of the airfield and to the northwest of Hill 107. Also, there was a much smaller German force, about 100 men, at the northern foot of Hill 107, in between it and the landing area. And all around the German and Allied soldiers, to the west, to the south, but especially to the east, were many, many dead German paratroops lying around. There were more to the north, but they had landed in the sea and had disappeared beneath the waves. By dusk, many of these dead men had been stripped of everything of value, boots, guns, ammunition, and food, not that there was much of the latter the confiscating had been done by both sides. Those materials were not going to do the dead any good. Just nine miles, or 15 kilometers to the east, units from group center had attempted to take Cania, yet most of the men who had landed anywhere near the town were dead long before landing. As things stood at the end of daylight on May 20th, the Germans controlled a sizable area about three miles, or five kilometers, to the south of Kania around the area of Perivolia, using a prison as their main base. They had also gained control of Cemetery Hill in that area as well. Now, all of this was considered good news for the staff personnel under General Freiberg at his headquarters three kilometers to the east of Kenia. Had German plans worked out, Freiburg and all those with him would have been trapped on the small peninsula, just above Suda Bay. As for the local Cretans, they had already shown their reckless fierceness in defending their island. To the far west, past the open field, the Germans who landed there, well, the ones who were still alive, 17 in all, were now in custody. The Cretans had showed their anger at Retitmo, as well, about 40 kilometers, or 25 miles, to the east of Melame, But that was only after the Anzac forces there were able to slaughter many, nay, most of the German airborne troops before reaching the ground. It was another bloodbath, one the Germans had brought on themselves, through aggression and appalling intelligence. And around Ratitmo, by nightfall, those Germans that had survived were now bunched into just two locations. The paratroops that had tried to take Hill A from Lieutenant Colonel Ian Campbell were pushed back all the way to the Olive Oil Factory along the coast, about two and a half kilometers east of the airfield. The second remaining group was just to the east of the town of Rititmo itself, stationed in Perivolia, not to be confused with a town of that same name to the south of Kenea. The German forces had been approaching the town, but after experiencing local ferocity firsthand, decided it was much safer to await reinforcements. As mentioned last time, the attack that came at Heraklion to the east was the largest offered by the Germans that day. It was also the location of that day's greatest slaughter of airborne troops. The German plan had been to land a large group of men to the east of the town, and another group to the east of the airfield, which would put it in between the town and the airfield. Yet, between the British troops, Anzac soldiers, and Greek troops, both airborne drops were practically wiped down. But later that evening, other airborne troops were landed near the airfield. Using this surprise, they managed to push away the Allied forces there. Of all the landing sites that day, the toehold the Germans held at Heraklion, was the smallest. But it would be wrong to say that the Germans now controlled the airfield uncontested. General Student, the planner of Operation Mercury, slowly realized none of the day's objectives had been met. The airfields were not ready to receive the waiting mountain division. Yet, of the various areas, May seemed to hold the best possibility for turning this bloody fiasco around. Therefore, Colonel Ramp's parachute battalion would be landed on either side of Melame, the town, and all seaborne traffic would be directed there as well. In the West would Student find his redemption. Darkness settled over Crete. The combatants of both sides were too exhausted or parched to make much noise. No, this was left to the brain donkeys and croaking frogs. And though silent, The humans saw in the night what their frazzled imaginations let them see. Gunshots were fired at sometimes real, but mostly phantom, approaching enemies. As for the wounded, well, they didn't have much of a choice. They were forced to just lie where they were, hoping to be found by the right side. General Mendel, commander of the Storm Regiment, lay among the bamboo, to the west of the riverbed. His men were looking out for him, but there wasn't much they could do about the blood filling up his chest. Around midnight, General Freiburg, who had a copy of the German plan of attack taken from a dead German officer, realized none of their objectives had been met. The airfields were still in Allied hands. Yet the report he wrote to Wavell was anything but optimistic Quote, We have been hard pressed. I believe that we hold the aerodrome at Meleme, Heraklion, and Matitmo and two harbors, unquote. The word believe is a telling one. Communications that night were pathetic and would end up being the undoing of his entire defensive position. As for the German paratroops who were alive and not wounded, they firmly believed their side had lost, and lost significantly. How could they think otherwise, with the majority of their comrades now dead, lying near them, bloated, blackened, and covered with flies? Beaten, yes, but not defeated. But they did recognize that it would be a moment's work to gather the Allied reserves and finish off those remaining invaders. But that is exactly what did not happen. Freiburg, the man at top, had done his part, by releasing the 4th New Zealand Brigade to clean up the Germans around Meilame and the prison valley southwest of Kenia. But for whatever reason or reasons, the men were never sent out, and Freiburg let the local commanders have their way. In fact, only one counterattack actually took place in that area. Brigadier Puttick, in charge of the areas around Meilame and the prison valley, did not allow the men to go forth. But then he did, sort of, after hearing from Colonel Kickenberger, who reported, wrongly, that the Germans were constructing an airfield within the area they held. However, Puttock only authorized the use of one battalion, about five hundred men. But Brigadier Inglis, the commander of the Fourth New Zealand Brigade, and here is where it all gets cross-eyed, thought his superior meant for use to counterattack tomorrow at first light. Yet he then ordered the 19th New Zealand Battalion to counterattack that night, even though they had fought that day and now had to be exhausted. Yet the details of this were left to Major Blackburn, who seemed to sense the wariness from those above him. With the order issued to him, but with freedom of action, Blackburn decided only to use two companies that night, anywhere from 200 to 400 men. To use more, he decided, would weaken his defensive line. Remember, this had started out with Freiburg releasing about 2,000 men for the counterattack. So the two companies of the 19th Battalion set out in the dark. They soon lost contact with each other, and then just randomly bumped into lost German troops near Pink Hill. This is just southwest of Knieh. After gunfire was exchanged, about 20 more Germans were now dead and as the rest of them had heard tanks approaching, they left Pink Hill altogether. The hill was then occupied by the New Zealanders, but as for the much larger force of invaders throughout the prison valley, they were not harassed in any way. Soon the two companies were called back. Thus ended the single counterattack of the night. To the west of May, the situation was even worse for both sides, and all due to a lack of communication. Over immediate control of the airfield and the 22nd Brigade was Lieutenant Colonel Andrew. Throughout the day, his men had been bombed from the air, as well as having mortars landed among them. The shelling, Andrew eventually figured out, was coming from somewhere near the riverbed. And although the shells landed in various gatherings of Allied troops, their main concentration seemed to be the supposed positions of his men on Hill 107, to the south of the airstrip. Andrew knew, of course, of the German bloodbath that had transpired that day, but that was then. This was in the afternoon, coming on evening. What were the surviving Germans going to do? What was their plan? And within that context, what was his plans going to be to counter them? The first thing was to get more men, fresh men, and they were to hand. So Andrew contacted Brigadier Hargest, commander of the 5th New Zealand Brigade. Yet the brigadier, who had also received reports of the numerous dead German paratroopers, didn't believe Andrew needed help. Not really. He was probably just overreacting with the intensity of the day and his exhaustion now. So when he got the call being asked for the men of the 23rd Battalion, Hargest told Andrew that they were already engaged in cleanup operations. Now, this was technically true, but really, they were just skirmishing with scattered German units. They could have easily been assembled and marched west. Before Andrew's radio message to Hargest, he had tried to call his superior, but after the first bombs were dropped, the phones were out. Then he sent up flares. The colors he used indicated his request for help. But the smoke from the battle obscured the flares. This left the radio, which the Germans may or may not pick up. But he had no choice. But now that he had been told there were no reinforcements, he again had no choice but to use his own men to protect his command atop Hill 107, as well as the airstrip. Andrew's plan was to gather what men he could. It would turn out to be only 28 men who would be led by C Company's Lieutenant Donald, throw in two infantry tanks, have them get on the main road, head west across the southern part of the airstrip, approach the bridge, and take out those German guns that were shelling his position and those of his men around the airfield. If you're thinking 28 men is not a very strong counterattack, yeah. Still, the men set out, behind the tanks, half on one side of the road, the other half, on the opposite side. As they approached the eastern side of the airstrip, the Germans in the area had the sense not to attack, with those two heavy infantry tanks in proximity. Likewise, Lieutenant Donald and his men did not seek an engagement. Yet. Their job was to clean up the gun units at the riverbed. Now, it must be remembered that it was still only late afternoon. There was still plenty of daylight left. So, as the first tank approached the riverbed, ignoring the R.E.F. camp and the bridge. Bullets from small arms fire started ricocheting off of the tank. The men inside were relatively safe, but the sheer intensity of the attack unnerved them. And this is where the lack of a plan between the men and the tank undid all their progress thus far. The men stopped at the edge of the riverbed, whereas the tank continued. And now that it was committed, it could not stop or would thus lose the momentum of keeping the Germans on the run. The tank surprised one gun team and literally ran over the men, but then got stuck among the rocks. The tank was now useless as a threat. The Germans returned, approaching it warily, and noticed there was no infantry to protect it. The tank crew climbed out and surrendered to the 200 or so German soldiers. Lieutenant Donald and his 20-odd men were suddenly out in the open and vastly outnumbered, so they started back the way they came. But this time, the German units near the bridge at the foot of Hill 107 and those scattered around the airfield opened up on the retreating men. By the time they met up with the second tank, only eight of Donald's men were not wounded. But the bad news continued. The tank leader told Donald that thanks to an anti-tank shell glancing off his turret, it was now immovable. Truly, there was nothing further that could be accomplished but getting themselves killed. So, loading up the severely wounded on the lee side of the tank, the men set out and eventually made it back to headquarters. The entire outing took two hours. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com By the time the men from the counterattack reached Hill 107 and were added to Andrew's men, only about 12 or so out of all of them, were not wounded. And of those still-able troops, at least half were stretcher-bearers or signalers, not exactly frontline troops. But here is the part of Crete's defense that is truly crude drama or dark comedy. Lieutenant Colonel Andrew tried to reach the various surrounding platoons by radio, but could not. After several attempts, he finally got through to Captain Johnson, leader of C-Company stationed at the southern end of the airfield. Johnson had his fair share of casualties, but still had enough men, for now, to direct fire at the airfield, should the German troops come, or any German planes try to land. Johnson told Andrew this, but if he was going to keep protecting the airstrip, he needed reinforcements. When Andrew tried to race him again to say he was working on getting more men, he was unable to reach the captain, and so assumed He had been overrun; they had not, but Andrew didn't know this. Andrew then tried to reach D Company, stationed in between the bottom of Hill 107's western side and the riverbed. He was unable to reach them at all, and so assumed the worst. But in fact, the men were still there, dealing with their wounded as well as making sure the Germans within the riverbed came no closer. But again, thanks to lousy communications, Andrew did not know this. So, based on his knowledge of the situation, or rather lack of knowledge, Andrew decided that evening to remove his headquarters and the men from Hill 107. When he contacted Hargest of his intentions, his superior replied with an enigmatic, if you must, you must. However, giving it some thought, Hargest soon after contacted Andrew and told him to stay put. He was sending a company each from the 23rd and 28th Battalions. This news improved Andrew's spirit, as he had not intended his withdrawal to be permanent. He had first wanted to regroup, but now that help was on the way, he would get his men to the eastern base of the hill, near Company B, if they were even still there, and wait for the two companies. They would certainly be more fresh than his men, so would be sent up to retake the summit." Yet it wasn't until ten p m that night before the company from the twenty third battalion showed up still better late than never, and Andrew had them retake the top of the hill, which they did without contest. Yet once they were up and starting to settle down, they were engaged by German troops who were testing the waters, as it were. But they held their ground. This enlivened Andrew even more. And as soon as the other company from the 28th Battalion showed up, he would send them up as well. And from what Andrew could deduce, Hill 107 would be as safe as it could be throughout the night, with two companies guarding it. The Germans would certainly be in for a surprise come morning. But it was Andrew who was to be surprised. The second company never came to him. Instead, they had stumbled around in the dark, on a more northerly path, and ran into scattered German units just to the east of the airstrip. After some skirmishes, the company decided they would not be able to find their way to Andrew, and so went back the way they had come. As the hours went by without Andrew hearing from the second company, he became more worried about his position come morning. There were obviously Germans to the west of him, And because of the gunfire that involved the second company, not that Andrew knew who they were, obviously there were Germans to his northeast. And Andrew had already assumed there were Germans to his north, either near the RAF camp on this side of the bridge, or just to the immediate south of the airfield, which meant that if more Germans were landed tomorrow, and he assumed they would be, or if the Germans from the riverbed sent some men around to his south, he and his would find themselves surrounded. Losing Hill 107 was one thing. Losing the airfield was another. Andrew didn't know exactly what the Germans had in mind. But having to surrender an entire company, along with those with him at the base of the hill, plus his scattered men in whatever condition or location they might be in, was unacceptable. No, he would abandon the hill and take as many men with him as he could find. Better to live to fight another day. By 2 a.m. that morning, May 21st, Andrew and those men with him had made it to the headquarters of the 23rd Battalion, almost two kilometers east of Hill 107. The men from the mangled C Company on the southern side of the airfield and D Company to the west of the hill were left behind. Captain Campbell of D Company next to the riverbed, soon heard rumors that battalion headquarters atop the hill had retreated. Disbelieving this, he went himself to check. True enough, the hilltop was empty, which meant he and his, it seemed they were the only defending troops in the area, would be the primary targets when the German reinforcements started arriving the next morning. It was time to leave. Captain Johnson of C Company was also disquieted by the lack of communication from Andrew, so he sent a runner to investigate. The man came back having tiptoed his way around the German units to his south, in between the airfield and the hill, and reported the hill was indeed abandoned. Johnson could not believe this. He had to be supported as his job was easily the most important. They had to make sure no more German reinforcements arrived via the airfield. To allow that was to lose the battle for Crete. Yet the man could not stay in such a position if they were all alone. So he sent the runner back a second time to verify his own report. The runner headed out and returned around 2 a.m. His findings were the same. Battalion headquarters was empty. Captain Johnson, to his disgust, ordered his men to ready themselves to move out. But hoping all this was a bad dream, the remaining men of C. Company would first make for the hilltop, verify the situation there, and only then head due east, which would bring them to the headquarters of the 21st Battalion, which was located just to the south of the 23rd Battalion, where Andrew ended up. But first they had to bypass the German soldiers to the south of their current position, Johnson ordered his men to remove their shoes, tie them together, and throw them around their necks. Then, with a the runner leading the way, this would now be his third trip through the German lines, the men skulked south and made for the hill. Fortunately for them, the Germans were exhausted and sleeping deeply. Once there, Johnson and his ran into a small group of German soldiers, but silenced them with a grenade. By now, the first rays of light were beginning to appear. A few German aircraft approached the airfield. Johnson couldn't help himself. Raising his Tommy gun, he sprayed the lead plane, then ran down the eastern side of the hill, his men following. Only later would he find out his intended target did indeed crash into the ground. There were no survivors. As the sun continued to rise, the Germans to the south of the airfield looked up at Hill 107. They could see no activity. So, sending up a few men and finding no resistance, Hill 107 was taken by the Germans. This was the beginning of the German victory of Crete. Student had estimated badly, had lost thousands of men for doing so, would lose many more, but his desperate plan for the next day would ultimately give the Axis victory. As for the Allies, their communications were poorly. Those that needed to make the key decisions were too far away. And, it must be said, Freiburg was still waiting, holding his reserves, for the seaborne attack. The Germans on the island knew now they had a chance. Victory was possible. But first they needed more of everything. So a signal was sent to Student at seven fifty one a.m. It read, Group West has taken the southeast corner of the airfield at May, and the height one kilometer to the south. And Student grasped at this. He asked a pilot captain, Clay, to do a test landing for him at May. Clay agreed. He landed, sustained only a few pot shots at his craft, then took off. Soon, a second JU 52 landed with supplies and ammunition. It had done so without Student's permission or knowledge. The pilots had heard over the radio of the men's dire need for ammunition, so, uncharacteristically German of them, took it upon themselves to land and unload what they had. But before they took off again, General Mendel was found and brought on board, along with six of the more severely wounded. There was no time to lose. Student contacted General Ringel of the 5th Mountain Division and told him to ready his men. Originally, the Fifth Mountain Roll was to be one of a mopping-up exercise only, but now he needed them to turn the tide of the fight. But first, Student would send his last parachute battalion, led by Nazi fanatic Colonel Rampke. In fact, Rampke would be taking over for the wounded Mendel as commander of Group West. The plan was for Ramp and his men, about two and a half companies worth, to land west of the airfield the one place firmly in German hands. Meanwhile, the last two companies of the 2nd Parachute Regiment would be dropped to the east of the airfield. Again, students' dodgy intelligence would lead to the death of all but eight of these men. This was where the remaining men of Andrew, the 21st and 23rd Battalions, were regrouping themselves. The morning hours passed quietly over Crete on May 21st, Only later in the afternoon did the bombers and fighters come over to harass and strafe certain areas. This started around 3 p.m. Those who received this early afternoon murderous treatment were on either side of Meleme, the town, not the airfield, any Allied positions near Prison Valley to the southwest of Kenea and the town of Gladitus, about three kilometers west of Kenea. After the attacking was done, In came the JU-52s, with three hundred men, who dropped near Meilame, again the town, not the airfield. And just as the day before, the vast majority of those were soon dead. Not that all were killed before touching down. Those that had survived were either bayoneted by the men of the 28th or shot by them at very close range. The already dead Germans from the 20th were now joined by their comrades. The flies would feast well this day. By 4 p.m. or so, the Germans that had landed near the town, included a much-needed medical team, were wiped out. Only those men that landed to the west with Rampk later that afternoon, around 7 p.m., did so safely. But now that they were down, it was time to move out. Any remaining daylight would mean his operations would be supported by the Luftwaffe. An invaluable advantage as the next few days would show. Ramsk's men started over the bridge, but the first few were soon hit by sniper fire, coming from the general direction of Hill 107. Clearly, it was not completely in German hands. Yet Ramsk ordered his men to keep going. The airfield had to be taken, or, quite possibly, when the sun rose tomorrow, Student would no longer be in charge, which meant Ramp Could be replaced. And the surging men could already see that the first plane, carrying men from the Mountain Division, were starting to land. Time truly was of the essence. Student was going to land as many of those planes as he could before full dark, no matter what. And that what turned out to be artillery attacks from nine guns of the remaining men of the 5th Brigade to the east of the airfield, beyond the Germans' view. Ironically, the Guns 75s were Italian artillery without sights that had been captured in North Africa. But who needed sights when the Germans were not modifying their approach or landing patterns? It was simply a matter of getting the range and then firing over and over. The race was on. The darkness grew. The planes came in fast, one after another, unloaded their cargo men and supplies, normally within 70 seconds, and throttled it in a mad attempt to leave. Meanwhile, the guns of the 5th Brigade kept going off. At least 20 German aircraft were destroyed in those last few minutes of daylight, some of their cargo still inside, while others were trying to gain speed to take off. The airfield was quickly becoming a junkyard. Then, and not that the men from the 5th Brigade could see this, prisoners were soon forced out onto the runway to fill in the freshly made holes by artillery shells. This was, of course, against the Geneva Convention, but much that had happened within the last 24 hours had also been against the rules of honorable combat. As the last of the light left Crete, the Luftwaffe got somewhat of a bearing on those guns to the east and engaged. This eased things Somewhat for the landing craft, but not by much. When the last of the JU 52s left, Ramp now had another 650 men to work with, and those men were fresh. So some were sent along the coast road, approaching Pigros to the east of the town of Melime. But now they didn't have the Luftwaffe raining bombs and bullets down on the defenders. The outcome was different this time. The Germans were held up with about 200 more casualties to show for it. Meanwhile, as other German troops were sent towards Hill 107, they were also engaged. Those firing at them were nothing more than stragglers who had gotten separated from their units, but they were still resisting. Andrew's men of the 21st and 23rd Battalions were still shaken up, and deservedly so, from the previous day's bombings. They had found that the Luftwaffe, when they came in low, had a surprise for them. A metal rod had been put onto each bomb, so when it hit the ground first, it detonated the device before the bomb proper could make contact. So the bomb exploded just above the surface, which extended its killing capacity. This, along with the plane's sirens wailing, froze those intended targets with fear. Soon, olive groves and other vegetation were ablaze with fire. The situation on Crete was beginning to turn the Germans' way, but just. Victory, if possible, was still a long ways off. Student knew this and was doing what he could. But there was already talk, and some of that talk was taking place in Berlin. Hitler met with Goering, and by the end of their talk, several decisions had been made. First, Student's days were numbered. He couldn't be removed openly. Morale would suffer. But it was decided that Ringel of the 5th Mountain Division would take over. Ironically, it was Student's determination on the 21st, the second day of battle, that began the turning of the tide in Germany's favor. But most vexing to both men at the center of the Third Reich was when they detestedly agreed that help from Italy was needed. So a message was sent to Il Duce. Mussolini grandly agreed to help, in that he would send troops from Rhodes to the eastern end of the island. But there was no way in hell, probably not the words he used, he would send any naval units against British ships. Berlin took what it could get. As the sun went down on May 21st, reports of the day's events made it to Freiburg, in his caved headquarters. The landing of troops at Meilame unsettled the man and those serving just under him. The momentum was swinging towards the enemy. A counterattack was wanted. Freiburg got the brigadiers together, and by 6 p.m. it was officially decided they would move against the Germans to the west. The plan that was formed was thus. Two battalions would wait until darkness, thus negating the Luftwaffe, move west and retake the Meleme airfield in its entirety. Also, as it was the Germans who were in charge of the airfield at the moment, Freiburg contacted Alexandria and requested a bombing raid on the position. For whatever reason, nothing happened for 24 hours, and even that didn't amount to much. Could there have been more than two battalions thrown at the Germans in this battle-saving offensive? Yes, absolutely. But as to why they were not used, that will be covered soon enough. So, it was to be the 28th and 20th Battalions moving out, joined by three light tanks. They would assemble along the western side of the Plantines River, located about five kilometers east of the Meilame airfield. The commander of the twenty eighth, Lieutenant Colonel Dittmer, brought up the subject of the pockets of German paratroopers in between their starting point and the city of Pigros, which is before the airstrip. Yet this observation was pooh poohed. Those enemy forces, it was determined, would simply be caught up in the overall net as they moved west. The plan took shape. The twentieth battalion would move along the coast road and be responsible for everything north of it. The 28th Battalion would move along south of the road, their end target being the recapture of Hill 107. The tanks would travel on the road in between the two forces. But then Hargist amazingly stated that, after all this was completed, the 28th would be pulled back, and the 20th would remain and hold the airfield and Hill 107. How they were to hold this priceless and rather large area after walking and fighting all night was beyond some of the men of the 20th. But orders were orders. As for the three remaining battalions, they were being held back and given some vague orders, never good, about dealing with mopping up operations after the counterattack was successful. But the key to this mission, being outmanned and outgunned as they were, came down to... Speed and use of darkness. If it were done when 'tis done, then well. But alas, there would be no speedy execution. It was decided to replace the current ground being protected by the 20th Battalion with the 2nd Australian Battalion, but they were eight miles away, with no transport to speak of, and there was no direct communication between the Australians and headquarters. But word would get to the Aussies somehow which meant the advance would only commence at 1 a.m. of the 22nd. Of course, this meant that of those Germans now in possession of the field, they had that much more time to organize. And this left the counterattacking forces mere hours before daylight brought back the return of the Luftwaffe. So why were the three battalions being left out of this most crucial of counterattacks? Why, to protect against the seaborne invasion was coming. Yet perhaps invasion is too strong a word. Of the many dead Germans from the first day of fighting, a copy of the invasion plans was found on a body and sent to Freiburg. Reading through the dry blood, the orders mentioned the landing of light ships only, and they were to land to the west of Meilame. Added to this was another intercepted German signal, Again, seen only by Freiburg, that spoke of an air landing of two mountain divisions and an attack on Kenia. And this point has been argued ad nauseum since this event. But for some reason, the general focused on the words seaborne and Kenia. So Freiburg issued the following order that is still to this day beyond understanding Quote, Reliable information, early seaborne attack, in area of Kenia likely. Unquote, which meant his Welsh Battalion, his best equipped and best trained, would stay in place around the city to repel the coming sea landings. But here's where the entire counterattack unravels before it even gets underway. Freiburg also made it clear that the 20th Battalion could not leave until replaced by the Australians, as in they had to be in position, not just in the area. Kenia had to be protected from the threat from the sea. And indeed, the seaborne ships were en route toward Maleme, not Kenia. But these invasion ships were nothing more than 19 Kaikis, long rowboats, used by those of the eastern Mediterranean, along with two captured Greek steamers, not in prime condition. Providing convoy duty was the Italian light destroyer Lupo. On board these vessels were the men of the 3rd Battalion of the 100th Mountain Regiment, along with supplies and flak batteries on board the steamers. A second convoy was not far behind. The same types of ships were being used to carry the 2nd Battalion of the 85th Mountain Regiment. This convoy, too, was being protected by Italian ships, as German vessels could not get past the British guns of Gibraltar without severe sacrifices. All this was well known to the British due to ultra which was dutifully passed on to Admiral Cunningham and remembering his orders he verified the number and heading of the convoys by sending out a Maryland aircraft with this done Cunningham went to work sending in Rear Admiral Glenny he aboard the HMS cruiser Dido along with two other cruisers Orion and Ajax with four destroyers Janus Kimberly Hasty and hereward, engaged the convoys about 18 miles north of the island. The work itself took about two and a half hours, but by the time the ships were done, all but one keiki had been sunk. Strangely, only 327 Germans were killed. The rest were picked up by German and Italian vessels, but that was several hours later. The British ships were long gone by then. Of the lone surviving rowboat, The Greek crew had jumped overboard before the fighting had started, so the Germans took over. Sometime that night, the rowboat came ashore west of Malame with its three very lucky officers and 110 men. Some of the flashes and resulting explosions from the sea battle could be seen by the Germans on Hill 107, as well as by Freiburg's men. The Germans believed that, yet again, defeat had been snatched from the jaws of victory. There would be no reinforcements, and the British counterattack had to be coming soon. That's what they would do. No, it was only a matter of time. Meanwhile, Freiburg, being read the reports as they came in, started jumping up and down like someone who had just hit a six, every time another Italian vessel was sunk. This, combined with his about-to-be-launched decisive counterattack meant that the war for Crete was all but over. Colonel Stewart then turned to the happy general and said something no one else could hear. Freiburg replied, well Jacques, it was the first time he had used the man's first name. It has been a great responsibility, a great responsibility. And after that, the general and most of his staff then turned in for the night. No one bothered with asking for an after-action report or for an update on the Germans to the West. Yet some of Freiburg's men later remembered thinking it was almost a disappointment how easy it had been. As for some of the others who got to witness this latest British naval victory, the Shearwood Rangers Yeomanry B battery, stationed just behind Kenea, had been ready to use their two 6-inch guns. Yet it seems the rowboats would not be coming their way. But as the sun came up the next day, they couldn't help but notice from their position the large group of German soldiers on the Meileme airfield. It would have been no trouble to turn their guns westward and undo so many German lives in a matter of moments. The men on St. John's Hill asked for permission to do so, but were told no, to keep an eye out for any future Seaborne invasions. This went on for two days. The Germans to the West organized themselves in peace. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to say hi to some people, thank some people real quick, and then I'm off to episode 122, you know, to hell with Caesar. So anyway, I'd like to thank and say hello to the latest members, Jeff C., Ashley H. from Sugar Hill, Georgia, Michael D. from Jensen Beach, Florida, Simon M. from Leeds, West Yorkshire, UK. Oh, I think I put too many E's in there. Anyway, uh, I'd like to thank those who donated. Joey Y. from Shoemakersville, Pennsylvania, Peter D. from Gwynne, Michigan, and Craig B. from Matlock, Derbyshire, UK. And, and I'd also like to thank Peter R. from Lake Oswego, Oregon, who bought a bug. Um, and then I think he bought a Churchill travel mug, something new I have. Thank you very much. And Timothy J. from Shelby Township in Michigan. And finally, I just want to let the members know that, yes, we're done with David Sterling and the SAS in North Africa, causing Rommel all kinds of hell. But I'm going to semi tease you and brag by saying the next series that we're going to cover, it's a battle, but I bet most of you have never heard of it before. So I'll have that out as soon as I can. Take care, everyone.